Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Oh, no, give me a break. Oh, brother. Stop thinking about the Stick to Wrestling podcast. I want to thank my friends at Fleetwood Mac for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. My name is John McAdam. This is Stick to Wrestling, where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we'll give you a Raw Bone podcast. Uh, really quickly, we're recording this on the evening, Wednesday, August 18th. And all I can say is I've been around Ric Flair and he has lost his ability long time ago. He lost his ability to surprise me. And in fact, we'll talk more about Rick as the podcast goes on because 30 years ago, I was at a convention in New York hosted by John Arezzi and Ric Flair was there. And of course there's always Ric Flair stories. And then the day after the the convention ended was SummerSlam right in New York, which I did not go to. I was in New York City that day, and me and the guy who drove from here, we both had to, no questions asked, be at work Tuesday morning. So that kind of stunk. But I'll get more into that later. But I want to bring on our guest. He is a man who flourishes his children with $90 backpacks <laughs> returning. Brandon Rice, how are you? I'm good, Johnny Mac. How are you, man? <laughs> I'm really good. I've been looking forward to having you back on the show. Absolutely. Been looking forward to get back, man. Hope you All have right. the show. So we are going to talk about SummerSlam. The 30th anniversary of SummerSlam 91 was August 26th. And Brandon, the first thing I noticed when I watched the show, well, let me go in this direction. I watched the show for the first time in 30 years and I'm not saying it was good, but it was nowhere near as bad as I remembered. No, it's not actually. Um, I mean, personally, I, I, I've always had kind of a soft spot for SummerSlam 91, which I'll definitely dive into a little later. But I, I thought the event was as a whole, it was it was fairly decent. There's going to be some really bad stuff that we talk about uh, today, but there's going <laughs> to be some really good stuff that I think actually outweighs it. So, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm OK with SummerSlam 91 as a whole. Uh, yeah, and, and like I said, I, I watched it again, and I, I didn't think it was that bad at all. I think, you know, my, where I was 30 years ago, I was becoming very disenchanted with the current wrestling product, both WWF and WCW. And back then, I was probably looking through it uh, from those eyes, just looking at the wrestling business, to me, falling apart. Yeah, I mean, it seems like just the year 1991 as a whole is sort of forgettable. Uh, a lot of stuff going on in WCW was was pretty mad, pretty blah. Um, and I think WWF just around that time, coming out of the late '80s, sort of trying to get to the point where we're transitioning out of the the Hulk Hogan era. It was just a lot of bad stuff. So again, like I said, we'll, we'll hopefully get into uh, a lot of the the stuff that did stand out because uh, there is some standout stuff on this particular event. But that just to me was kind of what WWF was in '91. You kind of just got to find and pick out the really good stuff uh, and try to sort of attach that to your uh, your memory bank, because there's a lot of bad stuff in 91 that surrounded it. So, oh, sure. I mean, WWF, you know, started I mean, they started getting a little bit silly in 89 and then like excuse me, 84 and then 89. They started getting crazy. And now we've got, I don't know, some some interesting stuff, like you said, going on. Um, before we get rolling on the card, I just want to tell you guys what was going on. Here comes his name again. Ric Flair had verbally 
agreed to come to the WWF at this point. Uh, he couldn't sign a contract until, I want to say, September 14th, but Bobby Heenan was already on TV with Ric Flair's WWF championship belt, so we knew something good was coming down the line. Yeah, wasn't uh, this was when when Bobby was this when Jack Tunney was like blurring out the actual belt from from the NWA, right? That Bobby had brought on TV, or did that not happen until Flair actually was on TV wearing it around his waist? That they didn't do that until after they showed the belt a bunch of times on TV. And then WCW took legal action saying that the belt was their intellectual property. And after, you know, Vince just kind of tapped out on that and gave Flair one of the old tag team belts. And that's what they were blurring out. So they, they made you think that they still have that title. Okay. Got you. Well then, yeah, they clearly, clearly had me fooled because I definitely thought that that was the big gold belt that they had been blurring out uh, that whole time. Not, not the whole time when he first got there, Bobby Heenan had the belt and they were showing it on TV, but I, you know, wow. Good memory from 30 years ago. And we were, all, and we were all very excited to see Ric Flair get away from WCW. I mean, we all, meaning pretty much everyone I knew, um, it was time for him to have fresh opponents, and we were looking forward to seeing that. You know, I remember we went on a wrestling trip, and we made a top 10 of the people we wanted to see Ric Flair wrestle with guys like you know Hogan and Piper on top, and guys like Flair and Snuka near the bottom, just for, uh, it should be Valentine and Snuka, just for nostalgia sake. Absolutely, absolutely. So... I um obviously as a kid growing up in this era, this is we're approaching, you know, my the peak of my fandom here, age seven, eight, nine. So the 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 thought of Flair going to WWF, the I there was only one match that I wanted, and it was him versus Hogan. Uh so I knew that that there was no way they could avoid giving that to us, even though never really got to see it on TV. It was more so uh, a house show thing, but I, I was pumped for Flair to come because I wanted to see him against the Hogan's and the Savages. Uh, and the Pipers, and it was just something new from having grown up seeing him, you know, against Sting and Luger and kind of recycling that, you know, every every six to eight months. So I was very excited to see Flair come. And uh, in part, he he did live up to 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 my expectations um, as as his tenure in the WWF had, had continued. You really hit the nail on the head because, I mean, what the world, the last thing the world needed in 1991 was another Ric Flair versus Sting or another Ric Flair versus Luger match. I'm sorry. Those had just been done to death and Ric Flair needed to be a babyface at that point, but they just didn't do it. On to the show, uh, a little bit off the subject, but like I watched it and they had the introduction. And the first thing I noticed were two guys wearing Bud Dry t-shirts. I don't know if anyone in the audience remembers this, but you couldn't watch an afternoon of college football without seeing 20 or 30 bare minimum uh, commercials for Bud Dry. They were pushing this so hard. And I was like, wow, I don't even remember this. Do you remember this stuff? I have no idea what Bud Dry is. <laughs> you have to keep in mind, at that time I was like seven years old, I have no idea what Bud Dry is. I'm hoping that you can give us uh, a quick explanation of what that is. But yeah, I, I, I don't recall anything with Bud Dry ever. It, it sounds like powdered beer, but it wasn't. It was just some kind of different flavor of Bud, and I don't even remember anything about it other than the excessive commercials. The opener, the British Bulldog, Ricky Steamboat, and Kerry Von Erich as the Texas Tornado defeat Power and Glory and the Warlord. Good match, I thought. Not, you know, a decent match. Totally a showcase for the babyfaces. I mean, no one could have thought that the heels were going to win this one. 
Oh, not at all. And and me personally, I'm a huge fan of the six and eight man tag matches. Uh, I thought the opener was was fairly solid. This is six guys that at some point in all their careers, I was a fan of British Bulldogs being my favorite tag team ever. Uh, you had the Warlord when he was with the Powers of Pain. Uh, I was big on you know the big uh, muscular, uh, medically enhanced guys, uh, if you will. So Hercules was another guy that I liked growing up. Uh, I was also a big fan of Paul Roma. You heard it first. Yes, Paul Roma. I did like Paul Roma. Uh, and then, of course, you had Ricky as Ricky. Uh, but what I will say was it was kind of weird seeing Ricky like in an opener like this. Um, 1991, as we kind of touched on at the beginning, was kind of like like a weird year. So the whole thought was like, what is Ricky doing back here right now? Um, and then obviously in the heavy gimmick area. So now he's dressed up like an actual dragon and breathing fire and stuff. So it was kind of, man, uh, I'm glad he didn't stay long. Um, and, you know, he went back to WCW and had, you know, a few really good years there. Uh, but I thought this match as a whole was a, was a really good way to just get six guys in there uh, who could all sort of work in their own right. Uh, I believe Davian Warlord had just wrapped up a, a program of theirs after WrestleMania 7. So it was just sort of like, hey, we got these six guys. Uh, we can showcase the baby faces. We can throw them out there to open it up. Uh, and I thought it was a, thought it was a pretty good match. I thought the same thing. And right in my notes... Steamboat out of place in WWF. So (laughs) he was an odd fit there. You you described it perfectly. The story I had heard in 1991 was Steamboat was coming back for a little while uh, so that he could purchase an addition to his house. Right. And I heard this from someone who knows what they're talking about. A friend of mine who heard it from me approached Steamboat and said, hey, you know, I heard you were getting an addition for your house. That's all you're doing here. And Steamboat was like, what are you talking about? I'm not getting an addition <laughs> for my house. So I got bad information. But I'll I'll tell you, he wasn't there long. So at least part of the story was true. Yeah, that's good. And, and, and again, like I said, I'm glad that he wasn't there long because if he's doing the opener for SummerSlam, you know, at Master Square Garden, where were they really going to take him from there? Um, so I'm not sure what the whole backstory is, why he was there so briefly in 91. Uh, but I think we can all agree as fans that he made the right decision to go uh, to WCW. Uh, ended up having some really good stuff with with Rude and Austin and Steve Regal. Uh, and then some some good matches, again, rekindling that fire with Flair. So kind of glad he got out of there. But yeah, 1991, Ricky Steamboat in the WWF. It just didn't really make sense for... For the type of uh, the type of guy that we knew he was. No, a lot of people don't like the Ricky Rick Steamboat, Ric Flair stuff from the early '90s, but you, you can't compare it to their 1989 or, or even their 1970s matches on their own. Those were good matches. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was uh, was Spring Stampede '94. I think it was. Um, yes, that was it. Yeah, and that was a, a hell of a match to me. And again, as 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 I watch. You know, that type of match, I'm not trying to compare it to, you know, their stuff in 89, that, that, that you know, that three-match series then. Uh, I'm looking at it with, you know, obviously a different set of eyes. Uh, and, and I thought it was good. And like I said, when he, when he decided to, you know, leave WWF for whatever reason he left for, uh, when he went back to WCW, there was some really good stuff that he did there. Um, so, you know, I'm kind of glad he was able to, to, to get out of there. Uh, because what what really would have become of him in 1991 WWF uh, as we're transitioning out of the Hogan era, out of the the you know the steroid era? What were we really going to see from Ricky at that point? So I think he made a good choice to get out of there, and uh, yeah, yeah, it was definitely uh, best for his career, and he didn't have to travel as much, so it all worked out. Um, 
Kerry Von Erich, when he first came to the WWF in 1990, they gave him a big push. They gave him the Intercontinental Championship. They gave him the big feud with Kurt Henning. The, the air is out of Kerry's tires here. The WWF has given up on him. Yeah, so when he came in, and my first exposure to him was this. Obviously, I, I, you know, I wasn't around when he was you know, booming in world class. Uh, so when he came on the scene, he was immediately one of, you know, my my favorites. And then, you know, he 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 beats perfect um, at SummerSlam, wins the IC title. And then it was almost like after he lost the IC title, they were pretty much done with him. He I don't think he did really anything too meaningful after that. So it was it was clear that, you know, when you go from winning the Inter- Intercontinental title one year prior to now you're in the opener and not just an opener where you can, you know, showcase what you still have left. You're in an opener in a six man match. Uh, I mean, if there's no other telltale sign than that, that uh, we're not really sure where we're going to go with you at this point. I think that was it right there. No, definitely. And when they stopped calling him Kerry Von Erich and started just calling him the Texas Tornado, like they didn't mention Kerry Von Erich, you know, after a certain point. When Kerry first started wrestling, he was I mean, he looked like magic. I mean, he had such a great physique for a guy in 1981 or 1982. He was a good-looking guy on top of it, so he got over like crazy. Now there are scores of guys with bodies like that who are good-looking guys. And the only thing that separated Kerry Von Erich from the pack was the fact that he was Kerry Von Erich. And when you gave him a generic cartoonish name, that, that took everything away from him. Right. So, yeah, by by basically sort of stripping him of, of his identity and then, you know, making him this this Texas tornado guy, which again kind of slides into this whole, you know, gimmick era. It's like, as you said, you got uh, the WWF has 10, 20, 30 guys who are muscular and in shape. And then another thing about Kerry was it was at this point where he, he wasn't nearly, you know, as mobile as he was in 1981, 1982. So now not only do you have him uh, stripped of, of, of who he is as far as his namesake goes, but now you're, you're putting him in the pack with guys who are muscular, who, are mobile, who can work, who can move. Uh, so it was clearly just, you know, one of those things where it's like, we got this guy on the roster. We don't know what to do with him anymore because we can't separate him from the pack that he's been placed in. Not only that, but I mean, let, let's be honest. Kerry has well-documented substance abuse issues that were kind of allegedly getting out of hand at this point. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, that that too. And then, you know, the reliability factor, uh, with him. So it's like, what, what can you really do with a guy that you can't really trust that is, you know, having these, these demons that he's fighting, that he's battling. And then again, he doesn't stand out in any other way besides the fact that he is Kerry Von Eric. And I think it's no secret that Vince McMahon doesn't normally like to, um, how, how do I put this, um, lend back to where a guy was made his career basically. And Kerry Von Eric was, World class. He was he was Texas. So I think also by moving him away from that, Vince McMahon was sort of creating this Texas tornado guy, uh, separating him from everything that he had done before. And then you're kind of looking on the outside saying, well, that's not who I remember. I remember Kerry Von Eric. I don't this Texas tornado person. This is this is you guys slapping this gimmick on him and putting him in six mans now. So I'm sure probably kind of tainted uh, a lot of the memories that people had of Kerry. But again, this is Vince McMahon. This is WWF. Uh, you kind of, at this point, had come to expect that this is what he was going to do to a guy that had been bigger in a territory that he didn't build. 
No, uh, Vince McMahon was very big into owning everything. Like he wanted to own the the gimmick. You know, he had the rights to the Texas tornado. You know, I, I just thought of this. I mean, I was once again, I was at a, a wrestling convention the weekend before and Kerry was there. Kerry did not look good at all. He he wasn't rude, but he didn't fulfill his uh commitments to sign autographs and he's just completely disinterested and at that convention Kerry tried to sell the robe he wore at Texas Stadium uh, in 1984 when he won the NWA title uh, the in, in memory of David robe and he was asking $900 for it that was the opening bid in this auction and the room remained silent. No one was buying this. And, you know, I didn't have $900. I'd love to have that today and sell it on eBay. But it was kind of a sad sight. Right. So what, what year would that have been, did you say? I might have missed that. Oh, uh, this was this was the weekend before the show. So uh, oh, okay. August 1991. Okay. So I think th- then again, yeah, you see a situation like that where Kerry is sort of, uh, I, I guess I don't want to use the word spiraling sounds extreme. Uh, but I mean, he it, it actually doesn't. Okay. <laughs> so he, he was actually, he was spiraling. This was, this was the back end. This was the downside uh, of his career. So you tell me a story like that. It, it's not really surprising at all. And I'm sure he probably knew as well that, you know, his tenure in the WWF was probably more than likely on its way, you know, to an end. Uh, because again, you're getting pushed as a, you know, as a, as the upper mid card champion, you know, and tag matches with the ultimate warrior. And now you're opening up uh, at SummerSlam. So I imagine for a guy like that, especially given his popularity and who he was in Texas for all those years, now kind of being, you know, a small fish uh, in a bigger pond, I could see how that would probably uh, have, have driven him in part to, to where he ended up being. Yeah, I mean, I, I, here's the comparison I'm going to make. Ace Freely from Kiss was used to being in sold-out giant arenas every night and in the 90s, I'm driving past the nightclub in Lowell, Massachusetts, and Freely's Comet is playing there, this tiny little place. That was, must have been what it was like for Kerry. Like, his star had completely crashed at this point. Yeah, and I think that's, that's, that's kind of how it works for, uh, I think, a lot of guys in sports, not just obviously not just wrestling. You know, a lot of guys, when their time has passed, they're not necessarily ready for their time to pass. Um, and guys deal with things, you know, some guys deal with, you know, alcohol, some guys deal with drugs. Um, it's a lot of different things. So, you know, if you're Kerry Von Eric now in 1991, uh, your career arc, you're on the, you know, the super downside of that. Like there's really no more going up from there with regards to your, your wrestling career. I mean, I don't know what type of talents or things he did outside of wrestling, uh, but coming from a family of wrestling, I'm pretty sure wrestling was probably is, you know, what, what he, everything that he knew. And to know that your career is probably coming to an end, uh, you know, you got to find ways to deal with that. So I think that's you know, kind of what he did. Uh, and then, you know, we saw how that uh, that ended for him. But again, when you're, you know, a big star and you pretty much run an entire <laughs> promotion, your dad has, you know, been, been you know, taking care of you for years and years. And then you're up here in New York and you're just not the guy anymore. And there's no, you know, pathway for you to be the guy again. It's got to get to you. Yeah, and you know what? We'll we'll end this part of this of the discussion on a positive note. Kevin Von Erich seems to be doing really well, so I'm happy for him. Next up, we have Bret Hart defeating Mr. Perfect Kurt Henning. Uh, he won by submission with the with the uh, 
What's the name of the hole he uses for a finisher? Sharp, the sharpshooter. Sharpshooter, thank you. I've only known that for like 35 years. Um, what did you think of this match, Brandon? Uh, man, so this is this is definitely my favorite match of the night. And uh, just a, a quick backstory, I definitely want to share this uh, with you guys. Uh, we weren't able to get the pay-per-view event. Uh, just wasn't in my parents' budget for that month or whatever. Um, and this is back when the VHS releases were a big deal at the local video stores. Uh, so they had a bunch of SummerSlam posters on the windows, coming soon, SummerSlam on VHS. And I also feel like VHS drops were much faster uh, than, say, like DVD releases of movies are these days. I could be wrong. I just don't remember having to wait too long to rent tapes of events I hadn't seen. Uh, anyway, my dad picks me up from school. Uh, we go to the video store and it's sold out. This is like the fifth straight day uh, that we tried to go there to get this this VHS cassette. Uh, so I'm pretty sad. Like, I'm defeated now. This is five days in a row. Like, I, I'm never going to see SummerSlam 91. Oh, my God. This is going to ruin my childhood. Um, so the, dram- the drama when you're that age. It's unreal, huh? Man, like, I thought my life was over. I wasn't going to be able to see this thing. Now, uh, is so this in get- Louisiana or Las Vegas? No, no, no. This is Las Vegas. So, okay. uh, yeah. Then he tells me uh, we get home. Uh, I do my homework or whatever. Then he tells me to go in his room and look under the blanket in the bed. And there was SummerSlam 91. Oh. Uh, so. So he actually knew that there were no copies left when he took me to the video store because he had grabbed the last one on the way to pick me up from school. So he sort of played the long game with me there. Uh, (laughs) And then uh, uh, Bret Hart was actually his favorite wrestler at the time. So it was kind of a treat to watch Bret finally get this big moment with my dad, you know, by my side, uh, sort of father, son, little Bonnie moment we still talk about uh, to this day. But um, excellent match. I mean, what needs to really be said about, you know, Hennig and Bret? In 91, um, Hennig bounces around like a ping pong ball, which I've always loved. Uh, and you can kind of tell these two during the match had a lot of respect for each other because they were just so in tune with one another for the entire match. Great ending. That was the first time I had ever, I don't know if that's the first time he had ever done the sharpshooter, uh, but that was the first time I had ever seen him do it. And I was just mind blown. Like, holy cow, these, are, I can, I need to figure out how to do this move so I can do it on my little cousin when he comes over here and make him cry. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, that was that was good to see Brett's first major moment coming, you know, as a singles guy, his first major moment. Uh, what better spot to to have him have that happen in than you know the Mecca, Madison Square Garden? Uh, you know, his, his parents were there. Uh, it was just really good. And the match itself was again just awesome. You're getting Brett, which at this point I think is coming into his 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 peak uh, as as a singles wrestler in in the WWF. And then, like I said, Hennig is Hennig. So, yeah, it was it was a good match. My favorite match of the card, favorite match of the night. Probably, uh, honestly, one of my you know favorite matches of, of all time. Uh, I'll just go ahead and throw that out there. Uh, and then, yes, like I said, seeing him put that sharpshooter uh, on Henning for the first time, I was like blown away because, I mean, prior to that, the the most deadliest submission I had ever seen was the figure four leg lock. Uh, so to see which I ever never actually saw Ric Flair win a match. With that, I know he did, but at that point, I had never seen him win a match with that. So to see Brett actually win the title using the sharpshooter, it was just it was a really good moment. And uh, I guess I marked out, if you will, uh, at age seven when I when I saw that. It was a great match. I remember watching it over and over again in '91. So I hadn't I haven't seen the match. hadn't seen the match probably in 20 years before I reviewed it for the show. And probably my expectations were a little too high because I remember it being like, you know, thinking it was like a a four and a half, five star match. It was really, really good. Just I had my my hopes a little too high. Um, Anyway, it was interesting to see Kurt Henning lose by submission. But what does he care? I don't know if you guys know this. That was supposed to be Kurt Henning's last match. He was supposed to retire afterwards. Um, Brett ripped his singlet off during the match. So he was like wrestling 
in regular wrestling trunks halfway through, and that was supposed to be symbolic, like the end of Mr. Perfect. And, I mean, I was really happy to see Henning come back about a year and a half later for Survivor Series because, I mean, what a talent he was. Yeah, Henning is one of my one of my all-time favorites. I, I don't know where I necessarily necessarily rank him, but he's another guy where the bulk of his career I saw was, was WWF stuff. Uh, I'm not a huge AWA guy, so I didn't see a lot of that stuff uh, leading up to his WWF run. But uh, that's another guy where I can honestly say from what I saw, I never really saw a, a, a bad match from him. And again, like he he could sell like nobody I had ever seen uh, up to that point. Uh, he was just a, a, a really solid worker. He could he could he could get in the ring with anyone. I mean, he 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 made he had good matches with, you know, Hogan. Von Eric, obviously Brett, had some good matches with Beefcake. Uh, so he, he was a really good, you know, all-around talent. And, and I think that kind of, you know, enhanced Brett's win even more because, I mean, Brett could have beaten anybody. They could have given anybody the Intercontinental title to transition uh, it over to Brett. But by him being able to beat such a great worker and performer like Hennig in that setting on that stage, I think that actually helped boost up his title victory and kind of, you know, boost up the, the start of his reign there. But uh, Hennig's a longtime favorite of mine. Loved Kurt. I even loved Kurt when he, you know, sort of transitioned over into uh, to managing Rick. I thought he was great in that sort of second role uh, with Rick. And then even their their brief program, which I would have actually enjoyed seeing that go longer uh, between him and Flair. That was good stuff to me as well. Again, as I'm approaching the peak of my fandom, seven, eight, nine years old. Uh, Henning was 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 really solid to me. And then looking back, I guess I could kind of say I sort of agree with you on that. I do remember the match being it, it is really good. I mean, like I said, it is definitely one of, you know, my my more favorite matches. Uh, but I remember it being like four and a half stars, just a, a, a bona fide classic. Uh, and the more and more I watch it over, it's still really good, but definitely not as good as I remember watching it. You know, the first 200 times I probably saw it couple of things SummerSlam 1990 they we were supposed to have a title change Brutus Beefcake was supposed to win the Intercontinental Championship and he got injured severely in that parasailing accident and the irony is a year later the title wasn't supposed to change hands when they put this together there was no plan on putting the title on Brett and then Kurt's back just got really bad and he he needed back surgery and he was going to collect from, a, an, from an insurance agency, I think it was Lloyd's of London, and take a career, a, a payout, which, you know, symbolizes that his career is over. And my my thoughts coming into this were, I wasn't sure if Bret Hart was going to get over as intercontinental champion. I, I didn't know if the fans were going to buy him as such. And I mean, I was hanging out with Dave Meltzer and Wade Keller before this event and I, and I expressed my concerns like are the fans going to see him as just a tag team guy and both Dave and Wade were like no Brett has star quality he's way way above being just in a tag team he's a good looking guy he's big and he's a fantastic wrestler and they were right and I was wrong oh, I mean absolutely uh, uh, his track record at this point now speaks for itself uh, but that kind of goes back to what I said. I think the fact alone that he beat such a formidable guy like Hennig to win the belt for the first time, I think that sort of helped bring credibility to to him as a singles guy 
I don't know, as opposed to beating somebody like uh, Greg Valentine, who was on his way, you know, on the downside at that point. Like he beat a guy who was who was still reputable, whose name was still heavy in the organization at that time. So I thought the the whole set of that was just perfect. And you could kind of see, even with, you know, with Anvil, you knew who the, 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 the workhorse of the group was. So I feel like even in, you know, when he was still predominantly a tag team wrestler, you saw flashes of his ability to, to carry matches uh, as he then, you know, sort of progressed into, you know, his singles, his single side. Like I always found Brett to be, to be very believable as, as a, as a, as, as a singles wrestler. And if we go by the formula, you know, that, that early to mid eighties formula where in the WWF, the intercontinental champion was generally, you know, the workhorse as opposed to, you know, having Hogan on top, you kind of looked at whoever the intercontinental champion was to, you know, put on a show every night, who better would you have been able to give it to than somebody like Brett at that time? Well, it's funny when they first put the heart foundation together, and we, you know, we talk about this sometimes, like the WWF, they just brought guys in and figured out what to do with them later. Jim Neidhart was all was kind of a big star when they brought him in, a, a, a rising star. He got a big push in Mid-South, then in Memphis, then in Florida. So I knew who he was. He was, you know, he had been champion, Mid-South tag team champion. I think he had been the tag team champion in Florida with Crusher Khrushchev. And then they brought in Bret Hart, who as a babyface at first, uh, as a kind of a mid-card babyface. Then they put the Hart Foundation together. And it all worked out really well. But Neidhart was looked at as also being a rising star in when they when they brought him in like early 85. And that just kind of never happened for him. Yeah. So with Anvil, again, I think it was a situation where he initially, you know, when you bring him in 85, you got Brett, who's the technical guy. You got Anvil, who's your your sort of powerhouse guy. Uh, But by, you know, late 89, as we transition into the 90s. Uh, does Anvil really stand out amongst other guys? Does he really stand out any any more than than a Hercules or a Barbarian or a Warlord? And I would say no. I would say you know at least maybe Barbarian and maybe arguably Hercules uh, were were better than Anvil at that point. So when you're gonna push a guy, when you have a plan to push a guy, if you're gonna push Anvil, but you're going to try to convince you know us that okay this guy is this guy's the star, this guy's uh, you know we're gonna push him to the moon. But you got five guys over here who have better looks and, you know, possibly work better. That's where Anvil ends up getting stuck. Then you have somebody like Brett who is outworking 98% of the guys on the card every night. It's much easier to push him into a singles role as a champion, uh, you know, than it would have been to push Anvil into that role. Yeah, Anvil, and let's be honest, he got noticeably heavy as the years went on. So that had something to do with it. You know, you mentioned Hercules. When I first saw Hercules Hernandez in 1984 in Mid-South, I mean, I looked at a guy who I saw as a, a major, major star down the road. And he was a big star, but just not to the point that I thought he would get to. Yeah, so I, I don't know why. And and again, it could have just been, you know, obviously the 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 whole muscle thing everybody was was huge everybody was ripped how does how does hercules stand out here but uh my first time seeing hercules i believe the first time i actually saw him wrestle i think i it might have been you know like on a superstars taping or something like that and i'm just like this guy is probably gonna destroy hulk hogan if he gets the chance and i know they had like a match on 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 saturday night's main event it just seemed like hercules was always kind of like second or third fiddle to to someone else. They put him in the Heenan family. 
uh, I believe, in 87, maybe. And then at that point, when you're putting him in the Heenan family, he's automatically going to be, you know, behind Andre. Uh, I think they had Harley Race, Rude, Orndorff at the time, a whole bunch of guys. So they kind of put him in there and just mixed him in. And I think he sort of just kind of fell by by the wayside at that point. But, yeah, I I, I, I always liked Herc. Herc was one of the, the, one of the uh, guys that I always had a kind of a soft spot for. It's why Power and Glory is one of my uh, guilty pleasures, uh, if you will. But, yeah, with him, I, I don't really know why they didn't didn't push him. I think he probably had potential to be bigger. But he's another guy who he got visibly heavier. I don't know if it's because he got off the gas or what. But the guy that came in in, in 86, 87 was a monster. And then you look at him by the time we're in, you know, 1989. He's, you know, he's kind of bloated, not really ripped like he was anymore. And then he just becomes, again, just another guy at that point. I mean, when he was in Mid-South and Florida, he he literally looked like he was about to explode. That's how, how much he was using, man. It was crazy. Next matchup is the Natural Disasters, Earthquake and Typhoon, defeating the Bushwhackers. Uh, Andre the Giant was in the Bushwhackers' corner, and Andre was a sad sight at this point. I know you're a big Andre fan, and you must not have been crazy about seeing this. I am a big Andre fan. and um. That was probably uh, so. Basically, the match itself, you know, Bushwhackers, natural disasters. Uh, I totally get how the Bushwhackers were over with the little kids in the WWF. Uh, but even as a child, I just thought they were kind of goofy and just not really believable. Uh, no disrespect, obviously, as I believe a lot of their clout in the business came pre WWF, like a lot of guys. This was clearly somewhat of a squash. You're building the natural disasters up. Uh, you're not going to have them take the battering ram and then take the clean pin, especially with the showdown with the Road Warriors imminent. Uh, which was made apparent at the end of the match. But what I, going back to what you were saying, I think the biggest story out of this was just the declining health and, and appearance of Andre. Uh, he has the cane, you know, he's barely mobile. Uh, it, it, was, it was sad to see, especially in hindsight, when you realize he only had, what, about a year and a half left uh, with us. You can tell he's in a lot of pain, a lot of discomfort. I mean, I don't know what the purpose of having him back on TV at that point was, because obviously he's not going to be you know, uh, a presence in, in the physical form. Uh, so I'm just going to assume maybe Vince was giving him, you know, some checks or, you know, kind of like a, a peaceful goodbye off into the sunset. But that's the the part of that match that stood out the most was just seeing uh, this larger than life guy who, who I looked at, who used to scare the hell out of me, to be honest, just look at him like just a shell of his former self. It was, it was hard to watch. I, I actually know exactly what he was doing there. Vince McMahon hired Andre the Giant because Herb Abrams made Andre an offer, and Vince kind of wanted – Vince had a soft spot in his heart for Andre, and you know it was like, okay, I will give you a job to keep you off of her, out of Herb Abrams' UWF. Okay, and then in that case, that makes total sense. I actually do remember – didn't Andre make at least one appearance for Herb? I, I don't – think so it, it he might have shown up at a press conference at some point but i i know herb had announced him but i i don't think he actually made it but i'm not sure okay for some reason i, be, I believe i feel like i saw a promo with him and captain lou albano for herb I, I could be wrong i'm sure one of the one of the guys uh in the group will go ahead and maybe correct us us on that uh but yeah as, as being a big andre fan um he was probably one of the first like heels i actually like kind of had a soft spot for that was hard to see but the connection there didn't earthquake attack him on tv yes he did he um 
he, Andre was kind of roughing up Jimmy Hart, and Earthquake took the megaphone that Jimmy had and hit Andre in the knee with it. So that was the storyline story reason why he was walking with two canes. Andre, you know, he was one of those guys. Wrestling was in his blood. I mean, the month before he died, he was touring Japan. So, <laughs> I yeah. mean, you, you had to push him out. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Even, even, even uh, and it kind of hurts me to say this, but even Andre, as a shell of inform as of his former self, is still somebody you 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 kind of want to see. So I, I could see why he was still able to tour even after this. And this was. Correct me if I'm wrong here again, but this was was this his last TV? Uh, this had to be his last pay per view appearance. Was this his last appearance on WWF TV at all? I'm not sure if it was his last appearance on WWF TV, but it was his last appearance on pay per view. Okay, so so with that, I mean, it, it sucks that that's the last time we got to see him uh, on a pay per view. You know, but again, with everything he was dealing with, health wise, and then just to know that you know the guy didn't have a whole lot of lot of time left. If Vince was doing that, uh, A, as a way to get him away from her, but B, because he had a soft spot, then, I mean, Vince McMahon might not be the the demon that everyone thinks he is. But, you know, I, I guess he added to the match in the sense that, you know, Earthquake had had messed his knee up, uh, and it kind of just made sense to trot him out there with the Bushwhackers, because even though he did appear to be a shell of his former self, and you could, you know, see it, uh, you know you were probably good for maybe a punch, maybe a light headbutt, or, or, you know, something like that by possibly bringing him out. So while it, it sucked to see him like that, I, I, it was still Andre uh, at the end of the day. I saw Andre at a house show. It wasn't a house show. It was a TV taping in Portland, Maine, and he was backing the Bushwhackers. He was in their corner, and he would do a comedy spot where he would take one of the canes and slam it against the ring post and, and distract the heels. So at least he got to do that. Yeah, so obviously he's not going to get in the ring and, you know, you know, do the butterfly suplex and things like that. But if you can trot Andre out there as a face, along with, you know, a, a popular face tag team like the Bushwhackers, uh, if you could send him out there with that and just his presence alone kind of added to the match. Like I said, that that's he's he's what I remember most about it. Then I, I don't see a problem with ha having had him out there. But but again, he just looked really, really bad. And I don't know. I don't know what his condition was, you know, uh, in August of 91 versus, say, the Japan tour. I mean, I've seen a couple matches where he was in there and he was literally just in the ring. That's all he did. So obviously the decline between August 91 and, you know, before he passed in 93 seemed like it was a little more rapid than, you know, the previous years prior leading up to SummerSlam 91. But, you know, it, Andre is Andre. If you can get him out there for, you know, a quick little spot, then then why not do it? Like I said, it added to the match with the fact that, you know, the Bushwhackers are going against these super huge guys. And maybe there's a possibility some kind of way that Andre might be able to interfere and, you know, add a, you know, a split second of excitement to to the match. So uh, it was good for what it was. Uh, the match itself obviously was what you probably would have assumed the natural disasters were you know, about to be, you know, pushed. So obviously the Bushwhackers, you know, like I said, weren't going to come in and, and go over clean with them. So adding Andre as a little bit of seasoning to be out there uh, as a, you know, a threat to possibly maybe give us, you know, send Jimmy Hart to the second row or something like that. Uh, I was fine with that. Yeah. I mean, obviously the it, it's Andre the giant, he's a legend and the Bushwhackers are going to get a rub from him. So I, I thought it was, it was a smart move in and of itself. Um, by the way, we almost did a show about, I, I brought up the Portland thing. 
I endured a WWF Superstars taping that went five hours in Worcester, Massachusetts. It was Superstars and Saturday Night's main event. Then the very next night, talk about being a masochist, I went to Portland, Maine for an all-star wrestling tapings, and that one lasted four hours. Consecutive nights, people. (laughs) Hey, um, (laughs) next up, Virgil against Ted DiBiase. Virgil wins the million dollar championship, which is kind of a funny belt. Um, Virgil got a a big pop uh, when he won the title. And you think maybe they would try something with him. They had big expectations for Mike Jones when they hired him when he was in Memphis as Soul Train Jones. He had a great look. He was a big guy. He just needed a little more seasoning. The WWF brings him in, puts him under Ted DiBiase's wing, and they really wanted this to be a big feud, like in 88 or 89. And this was, they gave him the championship, and DiBiase looked great in this match, but they had given up on Virgil. Well, I think, the thing about Virgil is when he first came in with the million dollar man, you know, he'd have his spots where he, you know, have to beat a guy up and that sort of thing. And I just don't think as a worker, he progressed from the time he came in to the time he got into this program with DiBiase. Uh, so, I mean, that could have had something to do with it. To me, watching this, this match was about as good as I think you were going to get out of Virgil. And that's him being in the ring with someone, you know, like DiBiase. Uh, so imagine giving him a singles push and he has to do, you know, matches with, you know, random lower to mid card guys. And what type of product are you going to get from him at that point? But uh, I think with Virgil, you kind of you kind of knew that eventually he wasn't going to stand anymore for, you know, the abuse that DBS was giving him. And at first it was just sort of like him taking orders early on. Then as they started to build up to the breakup it became more than just him taking orders. It became actual abuse. And I mean, to a degree, I don't want to dive, you know, deep down that hole to a degree. It was a little bit, um, I think that particular relationship on screen probably wouldn't fly today. No, it would not. Just the way Vince McMahon kind of would talk to him and order him around that wouldn't fly today uh, at all. So I think, as as Virgil progressed, as, as he progressed over time, and they got to the point where they were going to go ahead and break these guys up. I just don't think Virgil was a good enough worker for them to push him the way that they wanted, or the way that they had probably initially planned to push him. No, they had aspirations for him maybe to be their number two babyface at one point. It, it just didn't come together. One thing I wanted to talk about, I. I have been told by people, oh, Ted DiBiase is not a great worker. Where are his great matches? Where is the Flair Steamboat level match? Where is, you know, a an all-Japan mid-90s level match? This is the match where he proves he's a great, great worker by taking Virgil to a two-and-a-half to three-star match. DiBiase was fantastic here. Uh, yeah, and obviously I'm I'm not as privy to a lot of his uh, his earlier stuff as 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 most are. But I, me personally, I never really saw a, a DiBiase match where I'm like, wow, that like really sucked. That match was garbage. I never saw anything like that. And and I think the WWF knew how good of a worker he was because I don't believe I believe this is the only real meaningful loss uh, that DiBiase really had outside of you know losing the Savage at WrestleMania four. So he was always, you know, in the mix, 
you know, mid to upper mid card, you know, putting on decent matches. I feel like even at WrestleMania five, he had pulled out a pretty decent match with somebody like Steamboat, uh, not Steamboat, I'm sorry, Beefcake. And then I think as far as him not having his Steamboat, uh, you know, his Flair Steamboat type type rivalry or matches like that in the WWF, he was very limited with guys that he would have been able to to have that type of series with. I mean, outside of, you know, Savage, uh, maybe Bret Hart. Um, if you're going to turn him or Hennig, maybe he could have faced Hennig. Who was he really going to have a steamboat-type classic series with uh, in the WWF during those years? And plus, too, we we don't have footage of his matches in Mid-South Wrestling against guys like uh, Paul Orndorff, Hacksaw Jim. Well, we do have some Hacksaw Jim Duggan matches that were fantastic. So that's another disadvantage. And let me bring up that Lightning Lou Kippelman has found the Andre the Giant, Herb Abrams, Captain's Corner with Andre the Giant. <laughs> so it, it it's there. I'll put that on the board later on. Um, next up, we have the big boss man defeating the Mountie in a jailhouse match where the loser gets booked in a, in a Manhattan jailhouse, something I would never want to have happen to me. The match itself was good. Jacques Rougeau was a good worker. Big boss man was one of the best, uh, super heavyweights of all time. And I enjoyed this match. Yeah, absolutely. And I watched this, I watched this event, uh, maybe a week ago, a week or so ago, maybe about two weeks ago. And uh, I'm watching this. Now, I don't know if the conclusion of this match made, you know, smart fans die laughing. Uh, but in hindsight, the whole New York jail thing for the night, Jock sold that like a million bucks. Uh, and for that alone, I like this match. Uh, Boss Man is arguably my favorite big, as I like to call him, ever. Uh, he had lost a really good amount of weight between 89 and 91. He was much more agile uh, and could just really, you know, kind of bust his ass in the ring. Uh, and I mean, a program between a corrections officer and a Canadian Mountie, is there anything more WWF booking in 1981 than that? I thought this was a, a really good match, actually. Uh, Jock could go, uh, and I think the way the match was worked kind of played really well into Bossman going over and getting Rougeau out of there. Bossman got most of the offense, which, you know, made sense to me as opposed to it being, you know, some big struggle and the Bossman escapes by the skin of his teeth from going to jail for a night. Uh, but then he pretty much kicked Jock's ass most of the match. Uh, before you know, sending him off to jail, and just Jock's whole performance with being booked and 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 getting behind the bar, it was it was excellent. I hope he got an extra bonus for for his acting that night. I'm on the couch, dying laughing in 2021 watching this bit, and there's not a lot of stuff that I could say uh, I would laugh at uh, from WWF in this period in a good way, uh, like I did this particular match at, at the end of it. Jock Rougeau is a funny, funny guy. And for whatever reason, he had a hard time sometimes making that, making that come across on TV, not on this night. I mean, I remember hearing about what was going to happen and being like, Oh, this is so cliche WWF. And you're right. Rougeau made it work. He was fantastic out there. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was just solid all around. I don't remember again, laughing that much. Maybe I just never paid attention to to that bit as much, but he, he nailed the going to jail bit. And this is after, again, putting on uh, a really good, good match with boss man. The one thing I'll say uh, about uh, boss man is after he did drop the weight, because he was still agile for, you know, his size, even, you know, back in the, the Crockett days, he was, he was, he could move a little bit, but he was really moving. Like boss man could go at a hundred miles an hour. Uh, and I just think the their styles just matched really, really well in this bout. And I guess my question maybe for you would be, 
Was there anything planned more for Boss Matt? Well, first of all, did he lose the weight? Was it uh, was it health reasons? Uh, was it something that the WWF instructed him for? Was it just something he took on by himself? Because I feel like once he lost that weight, his work rate like really shot through the roof. But as he lost that weight, I mean, he pretty much was kind of mid-card bound for the rest of his time uh, in the WWF during that period. I mean, obviously being Hogan's, you know, kind of buddy for a while. But outside of that, he really was just, you know, mid to lower mid-card. Did they have anything that they might have thought about doing with him? I don't know. I don't know what made him lose weight. I, I, I'll bet the WWF didn't ask him to do it. I bet he just did it on his own. As far as like him going down the card, I mean, here's a problem the WWF is having right around this period of time. A lot of the guys that, that were big stars in the 80s were starting to get stale. And Bossman had been with the promotion for over three years at this point. Yes, they turned him. But when he turned babyface over a year earlier, and it was almost like, you know, when you have the same guy on your TV, you know, every Saturday morning or every Tuesday night when you're watching you, uh, WWF on cable, it, it gets stale. There's nothing you can do. And a problem WWF was having is that WCW was struggling so much that, you know, they had been using uh, WCW and obviously in the 80s, every other promotion as their farm system. And they're running out of guys to take, you know. So essentially, at this point, basically, Bossman had just kind of ran his course as far as being a main eventer or anyone like that. Like, I know he had uh, a couple months prior, they had given him, you know, he was doing some runs with the Heaton family. So he had gotten the Intercontinental title shot uh, against Henning. I believe it was uh, WrestleMania 7. But yeah, I, I can kind of understand that he had been around for a bit. Um, and again, this is this is the the brink of the transitional period uh, for the WWF. But he was just he was just really, really good. All, pretty much all of 91. And then he was really good. 92 with the Rumble. Bossman, again, like I said, is one of my one of my favorite bigs ever. And I think that even after this, even after his WWF run came to an end, you know, he went to WCW. Wasn't too terrible there either. Uh, but yeah, I, I never really knew where the, you know, the weight loss came from, but watching him, you know, in 91, late 90, I'm thinking to myself, like, sheesh, what if this guy had, you know, dropped this weight and, you know, turned the, turn turned the heat up on his, on, on his work rate three, four years prior, like, could we have been seeing boss man as a champion, world champion somewhere between, you know, the two major promotions. We'll talk more about this next week. Uh, but I, I will never get over WC or the NWA blowing it with Big Boss Man or, or in his Jim Cornette bodyguard role as, as a Big Bubba Rogers. They totally blew it with him. I was sold on that guy as a star. And, of course, WCW in the 90s once again blew it with him. I thought they should have brought him in as a killer heel. Yeah, they already had one invader, but so what? You, you know, you can't have too many of those. Absolutely. I agree. And then, uh, yeah, having him as the guardian angel and doing all that sort of stuff, they kind of did blow it with him. If he, he could have came in and been, you know, been a monster heel, could have been somebody else that you, you know, you fed some of the baby faces uh, like Sting, you know, or, or, or Ron Simmons or someone to that degree. Uh, so it wouldn't be the first time they fumbled somebody. Uh, but, yeah, I would have liked to have seen Bossman have a have a really, really fierce heel run after he left WWF and headed over to WCW. I mean, I remember when he first went to WCW, they were calling him the boss and they would get the announcers would get on TV and say, wow, that's a big boss, man. 
I'm like, <laughs> this is so bad. Number one, number two, create your own characters. Come on. Right. All right. Yeah. Next, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I, I was done. You're good. Okay. Next up, the Legion of Doom, no longer being called the Road Warriors, defeated the Nasty Boys um, in a street fight for the WWF Tag Team Champions. The crowd seemed really to get tired as this match went on, but when the when the LOD won the belts, the place came unglued. Yeah, so it was really, really kind of weird to see because I, I feel like when, when the Legion of Doom came in, everybody was really pumped to finally see them in WWF. Maybe not to the degree that everyone was hyped for Flair to go to the WWF, but it was cool to kind of see. We knew we'd get that, you know, that match. I wouldn't necessarily say it was a dream match, but we knew we'd get, you know, Legion of Doom and uh, Demolition at some point, finally. But yeah, it was it was kind of weird. I don't know if maybe it was the New York thing and it wasn't Chicago, but it was kind of weird to see the crowd was was I don't necessarily want to say dead. They just weren't nearly as as crazy as I thought they would have been uh, until the end. You know, when they you know hit the Doomsday Device and ended up winning the tag belts, then everybody went crazy. Uh, but I actually liked the match. I mean, my thing with the Road Warriors is they when they worked they worked with a lot of teams that were either you know their size or bigger and that was kind of like the catch oh the world warriors versus the natural disasters or the road warriors and the powers of pain uh and then you went from that to them working with you know teams that were visually smaller than them but what i liked about the nasty boys was they weren't necessarily these buff ripped guys but they were big dudes so it kind of made them you know not look nearly as small and it made them look like okay maybe they actually do you know stand a chance with these guys and i think the the match itself there was actually a really good buildup, kind of like a like a distant sort of build to this, because if you recall, when the Nasties won the tag belts uh, initially from the Hart Foundation, that was a, a tag match battle royal that they won to get that slot. And they got that over the Road Warriors because obviously Power of Glory or Power and Glory interfered. Uh, and then it sort of came to, OK, the Nasties cheated to win the belts at WrestleMania 7. Road Warriors destroyed Power and Glory at WrestleMania 7. Now here we have them meeting up uh, for the belts uh, at SummerSlam, and I thought the match was I, I enjoyed it. It was it was it was it was rugged. You know, we had some some really good spots in there. It was kind of hard hitting. It was what you would have expected from them, but it was a little weird to see the crowd not as into it. Uh, and I don't know if maybe they were just kind of restless by this point, but yeah, they they weren't into it nearly as I, as much as I thought they would be until obviously uh, the Road Warriors won the match. I can't tell you how many times I was asked in the late 80s and early 90s, when are the Road Warriors going to the WWF? I mean, constantly asked that. And finally, the answer was when they left in uh, the NWA in 1990, and it was time. But when they left for the WWF, my take on it was they're going to be just another tag team. Maybe they'll be tag team champions, but they're not going to be like the number three and number four baby faces like they were in wcw and i was kind of right about that you know they they won the tag titles they got a nice push they got main events uh teaming with ultimate warrior against demolition and and made and the three demolition the three let me start again (laughs) when they made demolition a three-man tag throwing crush in there but you know Everyone kind of knew that it wasn't going to be like it was with WCW, and it, it never was again, even when they went back. Well, I think what you have with the Road Warriors is is 
not to the degree of what we spoke about earlier with uh, with Kerry Von Eric, but a lot of their mystique in in you know WCW Crockett days was they were these huge, big, rough, tough guys, and then they go to the WWF, and there's a lot of big, large, muscular men there, so they didn't necessarily stand out on that end. Secondly, the WWF, I felt like as far as the tag team division, it was it was. I don't want to say second tier, but it just wasn't held nearly as high of regard as being the Intercontinental Champion or or the World Champion, the Heavyweight Champion. So you knew when they were coming that they weren't necessarily going to be, you know, the the focal point. And and while they, you know, they did win the the tag belts, I still felt ultimately they were kind of sort of just another tag team. I don't know if that speaks more so to just the tag team division in the WWF at that time or what, but I mean, outside of that, again, beating the nasties, uh, at, at SummerSlam, what, do we really have any other really memorable matches that they were, were involved in? I mean, they were involved, you know, they were at survivor series with the ultimate warrior battling demolition and, and, and whatnot. Uh, but other than that, did they really have any more memorable matches there? Again, this is a situation where it's almost kind of parallel to Von Eric, uh, winning the title at SummerSlam 90, then being in the opener at SummerSlam 91. Because we have the World Warriors winning the tag belts here at SummerSlam 91. Fast forward a year later, they're opening at SummerSlam 92. So I think it was another situation where the Road Warriors were, I, I don't want to minimize them to being, uh, you know, small fish in big ponds. But again, they went to the WWF. They weren't homegrown product. And they just kind of fell in line as eventually just being another tag team. No, I, I agree with you. The the tag team titles were always secondary in the WWF. Um, that's just the way it was, and, and that's what they got kind of cornered into. And you got to remember, too, the Road Warriors, when they first started out, I mean, when I remember when I first saw them on WTBS, just being blown away by them, and then they added the war paint, and it was like, oh, my God, look at these two guys. Well, that was eight years ago. That was 1983, and they've they've been around. And let's let's face it, every act gets stale eventually. Right. So I think yeah. At this point, unless you were under a rock somewhere and just hadn't known that they had a career prior to WWF, you probably weren't as you know impressed by them uh, because we can we can mention how Flair going to the WWF was was a dream because we can name five guys on the WWF roster that we would love to see Flair have a match with. We can't necessarily do that in 1991 with the Road Warriors going to to the WWF. Who did we really want to see them face off with? Again, besides maybe Demolition, and I think we more so wanted to see that because, you know, of the whole the whole gimmicks being sort of similar because even by 1991 or 1990 when they first got there, Demolition had grown sort of stale or were approaching that that point also. So, I mean, outside maybe, you know, a face versus face program with the the Heart Foundation, like who else did we really care to see the Legion of Doom go up against once they got to the WWF? So other than them just winning the tag titles and, and beating the Nasty Boys, there was really no, that was essentially their ceiling unless you were planning to to split them up, which I don't think they would have, the WWF would have done at that point. No, I don't, I don't think the road, I think the road warriors would have definitely said no to breaking up, even though animal kind of got out of the business for a little while after the road warriors left the WWF and then Hawk went to Japan and formed the Hellraisers with Kensei Sasaki, which is a tag team that I, I just did not like. But anyway, 
Okay, the next match is kind of a throwaway match. It's weird that they're doing this so late on the pay-per-view. It's the second to last match. Erwin R. Scheister, I.K. Mike Rotunda, defeats Greg Valentine. Valentine had been here since early 1984, and he was just completely washed. I mean, they were they were he was a babyface at this point. Uh, I guess everyone liked Greg, and he was a reliable guy, which is a good way to keep a a high paying job like the WWF was. But I mean, by by this point, he was just dead. Yeah, and Greg Valentine is somebody that I've grown to appreciate more as I've gotten older. Um, my first thoughts for him was he he was kind of boring, you know, with his methodical kind of slow moving style in the ring. I'm not sure why this match wasn't the opener, maybe because it wasn't going to be very good. I don't know. Uh, and I think maybe it's placement in the match would have been sort of to kind of temper people after, you know, in between, because uh, I believe it came on right before the main event, I believe. So it could have been to sort of temper the crowd in between the previous match and getting to the main. Uh, but yeah, as you said, this was just pretty much a throwaway match. Uh, it was obviously just a way to get our IRS a win on pay-per-view. But it was clear Valentine was a complete shell of his former self at that point. Again, somebody whose you know uh, look had was very, very dated at that point. The hair, and he, he wasn't obviously in his best physical shape at that point of his career. Uh, so it just seemed like a match that they just threw on there to, you know, get IRS a, a W uh, in front of a, you know, a live pay-per-view type audience. Um, uh, and that's what he did. So um, IRS, again, is somebody else that I'm also not necessarily uh, huge on. Uh, Mike Rotunda as a whole, I'm not, you know, too big of a fan on. I've made that pretty clear uh, in some of the uh, chats in the in the group. But, yeah, it had to be just a way to get him a victory in front of everybody and then uh, get out of there. What The match wasn't, you know, much to to even discuss really kind of just tossed out there and uh, give IRS some shine. A couple of things. I, I forgot to plug our Facebook group. Um, if, if you'd like join our Facebook group, it's a good wrestling conversation and we'll, you know, we talk wrestling, share results, answer questions, etc. I do know why this match was not put on first back in the early pay-per-view days. If you purchased a pay-per-view and you're like, ah, oh, this sucks. You call the cable company and you can cancel within 15 minutes and it's canceled. You don't get charged for it. So that's why every WWF pay-per-view around this time had a, a banger for an opener. They wanted to get you hooked in. So you didn't call the cable company and say, ah, screw this. I don't want it. Ah, uh, that makes sense. And I would venture to say a lot of people probably would have called and said, what is this shit? If it was IRS <laughs> and Greg to open, to open the night. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, you know, I think they were being a little bit paranoid. I think if you have a bunch of people over and you're watching a pay-per-view, you're not in 10 minutes in, you're not going to say, ah, bag out of this. But anyway, next we go to the main event and we had kind of a double main event here. They build it as the match made in heaven and the match made in hell. Hulk Hogan and ultimate warrior defeat Colonel Mustafa, which is iron Sheik. General Adnan and Sergeant Slaughter. And yeah, this was a match made in hell. This is not a pay-per-view match caliber in concept or execution. Brandon, at the time, I thought that the, the, the scheduling this main event with Slaughter being 43, Sheik being 48, and Adnan being 52, I would have guessed they were all 5 to 10 years older than that. Not good. Adnan comes across as like a 60-year-old. All three of them were out of shape. You know, they, they were like not wearing, they were wearing shirts, all of them. 
and I the match just wasn't very good. I thought. Yeah. So so in in having this discussion with me, just let me preference uh, or or let me you know preface what I have to say with the fact that you're talking to who was someone who was the ultimate Hulkamaniac in 1991. Oh, yeah. I, I was who Hulk Hogan was marketed to, and I ate every single bit of it up. Even I, as the ultimate Hulkamaniac who had sat through No Holds Barred and other crap of Hogan's, this match was terrible, even for me at seven years old. You have an entire heel team consisting of guys who, to be frank, have no business in a major pay-per-view main event in the year 1991. Um, This was even bad for WWF 91 standards. Sheik and Adnan, I mean, it, 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 it would take Sheik like 40 minutes just to walk to the ring at this point. Uh, he was a shell of his former self as far as, you know, uh, his physique went. And then Slaughter, who uh, I know I personally thought was already had been on borrowed time already coming off a, a, a world title reign that I just didn't think he needed to have either in 1991. Just in a mask, like you said, with their shirts on, just old. And then we ultimately have the ultimate warrior who's just kind of tossed in there. I, I don't really know what his business was being thrown into this match. I don't know, maybe Jim Duggan or Dell Wilkes or somebody who reps the USA wasn't available. Uh, it just made no sense. I guess you could have done maybe Hogan slaughter and some type of gimmick match for the belt. Maybe uh, then you have Sid guest ref that to ensure maybe no interference from someone. So you could still kind of, you know, put Sid in there. Uh, it was just a really unfortunate way to end what I thought was an otherwise pretty solid event. I think if you maybe rebook this, Maybe you can jumpstart Hogan's, you know, run with The Undertaker and maybe rebook this as Warrior Hogan versus Taker Jake because, you know, the Warrior was having his issues um, with those guys. And you could still have Jake crash, you know, the wedding, uh, the the second part of the doubleheader after the match. Uh, but overall, it was just a really shitty main event, a terrible way to end the show. And, you know, even Hogan posing and jeering at the crowd couldn't get me excited. That's how bad this was. Yeah. And, you know, my feeling at the time and it kind of bore out. I'm like, if the WWF keeps doing this, it's going to hurt their business because you don't want people. You want people to buy the pay-per-view that comes out. They had four a year. You want the wrestling fans to buy them. You don't want them to even think about saying, hey, this main event sucks. Maybe we could, should skip this one. Or after the fact that main event sucked, maybe I should skip the next one. Yeah, and if that's something that you're trying to avoid, if you're living by these these pay-per-view philosophies of, well, I can't put IRS and Greg Valentine first because people will turn the pay-per-view off and, and won't pay, you have to think long-term. And if I'm putting out this crap main event that, that really makes no sense, people still might not want to buy and purchase next time because this is what you're giving me for my $29.95 Hogan and Warrior and I, essentially a handicap match because – uh, at this point, the Iron Sheik wasn't necessarily blazing up the charts with his work rate. Adnan had to be every bit of, you know, a million years old, at least in wrestling years by this point. And then Slaughter, it's not like we're talking about boot camp match Slaughter either. So you're putting Hogan and Warrior in the ring against these these three guys. And this is this is what I'm paying my my thirty dollars for is to, to see this. And then, you know, you have Sid in there, which, again, it, 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 it kind of gives you the opportunity to see Sid in the showcase you know, his size and what he looks like, you know, on a big pay-per-view stage. But it just seemed like a big jumble of just nothing that they threw out there to end the show. And um, honestly, it, I, I could have completely done without it. You could have ended the show with with, with the wedding uh, and left it alone. But like I said, worst case, why not just 
give feed Hogan slaughter, you know, in some type of random gimmick match and, you know, have Sid be the guest ref for that. I just never really understood the purpose of that. And then throwing the warrior in there, just, it just made really no sense at all. I I've been around Iron Sheik and I like the guy. Okay, I'm not. This is you know nothing personal. When he was in WCW in 1989, I was like, get this guy out of here. He has no business in a major promotion anymore. And here we are two years later, and he's in the main event. And if someone had told me, let's say in 1988 or 1989, that Iron Sheik was not only going to be in the WWF, he was going to be in a pay-per-view main event. I wouldn't have believed it if someone had told me at the same time Sergeant Slaughter would become WWF champion and would main event two pay-per-views. I I would not have believed it. And here's the thing. you know, Back then, you have four pay-per-views per year. One of them has a built-in main event, the Royal Rumble. So you've only got to come up with three different main events per year that come across as special, and this is one of them. Yeah, this is – I'm not sure who who thought this out this way. And then part of me maybe feels like they knew they had the Savage and Liz wedding coming up at the end. So it's like, all right, even though this is a shit match, like everybody's going to go home happy. We get to see Savage and Liz get married, that sort of thing. So we can pretty much, as long as we give the fans some Hogan and some Warrior, it doesn't really matter who they're in the ring with. Um, and if it, if that was their approach, then it was just all bad and it backfired. I think Slaughter should have been, they should have gotten rid of him. And I like Slaughter. If he's listening to this, don't don't kill me, sir. Uh, but after he lost at WrestleMania 7 and lost the belt back, consummate transitional champion, I think he should have been done there at that point. There's no way he should have main evented a second one. And like you said, when you're getting four pay-per-views a year, this isn't the era of 15 in your houses and 30 hell in a cells uh, in between your, your big four events, you got to put your best possible product out there. Uh, and that just wasn't it. But I think part of the thought process was we're going to pitch this as a double sort of uh, main attraction here with the match made in hell match made in heaven. So no matter how bad this match, because surely no one thought that that was going to be a match of good quality. Just on paper, the participants in it alone should have told you that this wasn't going to be some classic main event that people were going to be talking about in a positive light 31 years later. Uh, So I think maybe part of the process was knowing that everybody was going to go home happy seeing, you know, uh, uh, the the wedding of of Savage and Liz afterwards. At least that's what I would hope was the thought process behind feeding us, feeding us what they gave us. See, I thought that a couple of things. I thought that this was a the sound of alarm almost that the WWF was getting really arrogant and they thought they could literally roll anything out there and people would buy it. And in fairness, uh, the Madison square garden sold out and the pay-per-view buy rate wasn't terrible. Um, what the, the main attraction for this match wasn't even can Hogan and warrior beat these guys. It was, will Sid justice turn? Will he be a, a baby face or a heel? He's the ref in this match, and obviously he it turned out he was a babyface. And Sid was Sid had charisma. I will give him that because all of early 1991 was, you know, is Sid gonna jump to the WWF? And obviously he did. And they had high hopes for him, as in maybe this guy can replace Hulk Hogan high hopes. And I'm not kidding when I say that. And I remember as soon as he came back into the ring. Hogan ripped off his referee shirt and the two of them started posing 
I said, no chance, no way. This guy does not have the it factor of a Lex Luger, never mind a Hulk Hogan. Yeah, so I'm somebody that actually, I, I mean, I really like Sid. I've always, always liked Sid. Uh, I think the the problem, like you said, was the the whole charisma thing, if you will. But part of what I did like about Sid was he had a very arrogant, cocky demeanor. I mean, even in his promos, he called himself the master and the ruler of the world. So I think where he lacked in, you know, the over-the-top flare and fire on the, you know, the mic, like Hogan did, he made up for with his his arrogant, like, you can't kick my ass, you're not going to beat my ass, I'm going to take over everybody in this in this organization. And he had that persona, and I think that part of him, he played he played very well. Uh, so from that regard, I thought Sid was was perfect for who he was. And I mean, even as a challenger to Hogan, you know, with this bigger than life over the top personality, I thought the timing of it, just him coming to the WWF, I thought it was it was perfect because if you're reading between the lines and seeing, you know, that Hogan is that stale word coming back like he's he's getting there. I'm sure he probably already was there for a lot of people. Uh, he's getting there. I think Sid would have was was a solid, you know replacement to come in but it's like ultimately is Sid a babyface or is he a heel because walking around with the type of of arrogance and the you know the type of promos he was delivering babyfaces don't generally talk and act that way so you kind of had to pitch Sid as a heel but I think again with that whole build-up with him you know doing his feud with Hogan I thought the build-up was, was was cool like you know he's he's this 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 big guy who Hogan you know can match up with size for size and it's like, do we keep him as a baby face to kind of keep him and Hogan apart? Or do we just throw this guy in there and say, hey, you know what? Turn him heel, make him a badass and throw him in there against Hogan. And, and that's ultimately what they ended up doing. Yeah. And, they've, you know, obviously they they turned him like what, five or six months later. Uh, Sid was always a guy. He, he had talent. He had a look. It was just t- sometimes it was hard to figure out what to do with him. But anyway. Next, we have The Wedding. I am buying a pay-per-view to watch two people who are already married get married again. Um, I, I, let me ask you this, Brandon. Now, someone said this to me. Now, back in 91, I thought it was an interesting question. He was like, first of all, Randy and Liz in real life were having problems by this point. Or at least it was, you know, that was what everyone was saying. And now they've got to look each other in the eyes and say, I love you and do this wedding thing. One of my friends said that they thought that was in really bad taste, that they put those two people through that. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I, I would hope that Savage and Liz had willingly signed off on that. I would hope that it wasn't something that they were forced into doing. Uh, me personally, if, 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 if we knew, if I knew, if we're booking this and I know that these two are that this is not, you know, because hey, some divorces are are amicable, some are peaceful, uh, probably fewer and far between, but some are that way. So you probably could do a scenario where they could have this fake wedding because their divorce or whatever they're going through is is, is peaceful. But from all accounts, it wasn't peaceful at all. So I, I could kind of see why someone would think that that wasn't probably in 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 the best taste. And I don't know if the WWF was playing the long game here, but to me. The wedding was less about or it became less about them actually, you know, tying the knot and more about, you know, building up a way to get Savage back into the ring after losing a retirement match uh, and throwing him in there in there with Jake. 
but I mean, yeah, if the if their relationship was as as had gotten as sort of volatile as all accounts suggest, uh, I can agree that it probably was a little bit disrespectful to them and to their relationship to have you know Savage getting on one knee, you know, fake crying and asking her to marry him, knowing that um, no when we leave here, she's going to go her separate way and I'm going to go my separate way. Uh, so I could see why somebody would, would, would feel that way. And, and to an extent, I, I, I can agree with that. I think they were still married. I, th- I think they were still together, but they were going through a rough patch, which they didn't get out of. Um, I'll, I'll, share, I'll share a bit of an anecdote. Um, I have a friend who's in a band and the drummer and the lead singer are married. The lead singer is a female. And one day they band practice is canceled because these two are having a fight. I thought that was the craziest, funniest story ever, because you know what? You go out there and do your job. You put your personal stuff aside and you do what you need to do. And, you know, I didn't think it was in poor taste at all. I do know that, you know, if the WWF, if they ask you to do something it's probably a good idea to do it. Brendan, I don't know if you if you heard this story. Um, Elizabeth was offered a million dollars by Playboy to pose in their magazine. And Randy wanted to do it. I think this was 88. And Vince told them, yeah, you can go ahead and do this and you'll never work here again. And they're like, all right, well, we have more long term uh long-term money-making value in staying in the WWF. But, you know, Vince was, Vince was pretty adamant about things. You know, it, it's, he was kind of his way or the highway. Yes, they were exceptions. I know about the honky tonk man thing, but you know, it's hard to say no to this day. It's really hard to say no. No. I, and I completely understand, you know, you have to do what's ultimately what's best for, you know, for you uh, and your family or whatever moving forward. Uh, so I could see why it's like, hey, you know, I know you guys are going through something on the outside. That's why I say I could see both sides. I know you guys are going through something on the outside, but for storyline purposes, this is going to help us move things forward. It's going to get Randy back in the ring. It's going to keep him active. And again, as as, as crazy as, as Savage has been made out to be, uh, whether everything's true or not, uh, for him to, you know, agree with that, that probably shows his his loyalty to a bit to McMahon, uh, and then also to a degree where it's like, okay, no matter how bad things are on the outside, I don't want to lose my job. So I'm going to go ahead and say yes, and we're going to do this. And then, you know, they they did the, the angle where he asked her to marry him. Then they get married. And, I mean, do we really see Liz again after that on WWF TV? So it seems like it could have been one of those situations where it's like, hey, we're not going to put you back on TV every week. She's not going to trot out to the ring with you every single week do this spot, do this spot, and then you guys are good to go. So I could see if it's presented in that way, somebody like Savage, no matter what they were going through, could, you know, basically pull his pants up and say, okay, yeah, we can do that. That's actually a good point. You're right. They did take Elizabeth right off TV right around this time after they did the, the snake thing. Um, and maybe that's the storyline reason. Okay, Liz is, Liz is, you know, now a housewife staying at home. Let's talk a little bit about the aftermath of SummerSlam. Uh, I mentioned that I was in New York that weekend, I, and I ordered it on pay-per-view, the event on pay-per-view. I get a call the next night on a Tuesday, and I'm told that Ultimate Warrior was fired in the dressing room after the event. And I was like, what? And it was true. They fired him in the dressing room right after the event. Which, to this to this day, is still crazy to me. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, you know, again, that's another situation where what, what what were we really going to 
to get from Warrior in 91. And it seemed like, you know, when, when you fire somebody right on the spot like that, uh, after just being in the main event, that you probably had been debating this for a while. And it had just come to a head that particular night. But, I mean, Warrior had been working with, you know, Undertaker and kind of Jake. I don't think they were going to put him back on top anytime soon. I think McMahon's patience had worn thin with Warrior and, you know, some of his, uh, you know, off-camera, behind-the-scenes type antics. So they get rid of him there, and then we don't see him again until, uh, I believe it was WrestleMania 8. He's, you know, significantly smaller and then just kind of not the Warrior that we had come to no, um, prior to, you know, his exit, but yeah, they've been firing the warrior unless they had something up their sleeve major for him to do. I feel like him leaving, uh, at that point in 1991, I don't feel like he left anything on the table or, you know, we, we, we missed out on something that, you know, the, the, what if, uh, with the warrior, because I think at that point he had already kind of served his, his purpose for, uh, McMahon, if you will. So I, I, I remember, you know, I was somebody who watched TV on a, on a regular basis, superstars, uh, all American wrestling, everything that was on, I would watch it. And I personally didn't miss Warrior when I stopped seeing him on TV. Um, and I don't know necessarily if it uh, in the, the totality of it, if the ultimate word just wasn't as over anymore. But I feel like if McMahon knew he could have continued to make big money using the Warrior, I don't know that he necessarily would have fired him that way more so abruptly. But yeah, I don't feel like the WWF lost anything in 91 by losing the Warrior. I know I've used this word a bunch of times this this uh, episode, but they were in such a transitional period. And I don't know how the Warrior was going to fit in that, you know, moving forward anyway. So I don't feel like they really lost anything by letting him go that night. I mean, well, what happened was after they announced the main event, Warrior held Vince McMahon up for more money. He and not just for the event, but long term, he wanted Hulk Hogan money. And, you know, he's he's not Hulk Hogan. That's all there is to it. But Vince placated him to get him into the ring so that he wouldn't have to change his main event. And then as soon as the thing was over, bam, Vince got even. He fired him right on the spot. And in a way, I can't say I blamed McMahon because Warrior, you know, he'd been with the company for over four years. And there there had been more than one incident between him and Vince. And Vince just decided he'd had enough. A warrior was still booked in main events around the horn against the undertaker in like uh casket matches or whatever. And they used either Sid or Randy Savage to take his place. So they, they didn't even let him finish out his dates. Yeah. So anytime they're not letting you finish out your dates, then yeah, like I said, it probably was a scenario where McMahon was fed up the, and then the holding up, you know, holding them up, for the money thing that you had mentioned probably was just the last straw. And he's like, you know what? We've already put on all the promo material. Hey, fuck this guy. I'm getting this guy out of here uh, as soon as the night's over. Uh, and then those are actually body bag matches that you were referring to. Uh, and I'm pretty sure I've seen one with the undertaker and said, I'm like, why is this happening? But that explains it. Now that was supposed to have been the warrior in that spot. Okay. Yeah. That, that totally makes sense. I mean, one last thing. Um, I mean, I had such a great time in New York. The weekend before this show, um, and I got to hang out the whole weekend. I was hanging out with Dave Meltzer, uh, Wade Keller, John Arezzi. I spent a lot of time with Jim Cornette, uh, Rip Rogers. I can go on and on. But, I mean, when you're in a situation like that, I was smart enough to just sit there and listen. And you you come across 
with knowing so much more than you did coming in. I mean, I, I learned so much about the wrestling business and its history and how it works and what was going to happen next. Like, you know, that was when I learned that, you know, yeah, Kurt Henning's losing the title because he, he needs to retire, you know, little things like that. It was a really cool time. And I actually, I mentioned that I had to leave. I turned down free tickets for this show and I would have gotten a tour of the after mag bill after magazine, the, the factory where they're made the offices. I, I would have gotten to see that and, you know, just go to the, the event with Melter Orezzi and Keller. And I missed out on so much, but I absolutely, and my friend, both, we absolutely needed to be home and uh, I wish things could have been different, but I had a great weekend anyway, Brandon, thank you for coming on the show. It's been too long since I've had you on. You were a great guest. Absolutely, man. Thank you for having me. That was a whole lot of fun, man. And hope to uh, hope I sounded good. Hope I was able to provide a little entertainment for everybody for the last hour and twenty or so. Um, but yeah, man. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Hey, you're very welcome. You, it was it was a great show. And I'm glad you had fun because that's what I want this to be is fun. I want to thank our producer Lou Kippelman for all the great work he does making stick to wrestling uh, sound as good as it does. Believe me, Lou didn't have an easy week. This this got rescheduled. I mean, he's been rescheduling me a couple of times, so I'm grateful for that. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day. 